Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dr. Robert Pape. Robert is Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, and he specializes in international security affairs. He's also studied extensively the January 6th insurrection to try to understand who these 800 Americans are who stormed the U.S. Capitol and what inspired them. Robert's team of researchers spent the weeks and months after January 6th reviewing court documents, media coverage, arrest records. They wanted to learn about the demographics, socioeconomic traits, and militant group affiliations of the individuals arrested that day. And Robert shares his findings with us about who was involved, who are these people. And he also has a discussion with me about the role of our faith leaders. Do they have a role to play in this? And I must tell you, in thinking about January 6th, I don't think we talk about the threat that it is enough within the church. Instead, I think we've seen more sustained talking points from a variety of bishops against movements they perceive as godless. And those movements tended to deal with the matters of racial justice. I haven't seen a sustained discussion that frames the January 6th insurrection as a threat to our way of life, as a threat to those of us who practice the faith, as a threat to faith itself. And so we have to, I think, as as Catholics, really listen to what Dr. Pape is saying and consider how these insurrectionists could be, or most likely are, the very person sitting next to you in the pew, or behind you in the pew, in front of of the pew. In whatever case, they are your parishioners. And so how do we, as Catholics, and what we say, think, behave, and believe, counter this insidious thinking that really puts our whole democratic project, you know, threatens it in a real way. I'm not talking about just ideologies. I'm talking about ideologies where people have taken violent actions. And we saw that with people attacking the Capitol and trying to go in and stop our election, to take away my vote, to take away your vote, because they just didn't believe that it was a real vote that happened. And therefore, they're just going to overthrow everything and make sure nothing is real except for what they, by their own power, say is real and inflict that upon you and me and every other American. This should be something that we are very concerned about. This is a real dangerous problem and something that isn't and hasn't gone away. And so I hope you really consider what you need from your local shepherd to help try to neutralize this kind of thinking as it may come up in the parish. I hear threads of it in our people's concerns about being a real Catholic, you know, the Orthodox or whatnot, is the same kind of thinking to me that mirrors the people saying, well, we're the real patriots, and so we're going to decide for democracy what real democracy is, even though we have a duly way of electing our leaders. Same thing within the church, that we have our bishops, we have our Holy Father, and yet there are a determined number of Catholics that would say, no, we're the real Catholics, and we're going to tell you how to do things 
contrary to what our bishops and our Holy Father say, I see a lot of that same sentiment. And so it worries me that we have sort of our parallel insurrection, if you will, in the church. And it would not surprise me if these same people wouldn't be also sway to the ideology that led to an insurrection at the Capitol. I lived in D.C. I heard the helicopters overhead for days, seemed like weeks after the insurrection. I went down into the Capitol to saw everything covered with fences and, and armed military walking the streets. That's how real it was. And I don't ever want our country to experience that again. I will never forget the horror that seeing the Confederate flag paraded through our Capitol. The Confederates couldn't even do that during our Civil War. And yet, during the January 6th insurrection, we saw people proudly waving a treasonous flag in the halls of Congress. This cannot stand. This cannot happen again. We must take action. We must confront what seems normal in terms of the idea that, yeah, it's okay to use violence to overthrow our way of life. We can't allow that. We need to have these discussions of people of faith that care about our neighbor and cherish the common good. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. We're trying to create spaces for these conversations like the one I had with Dr. Pape about the January 6th insurrection. We need to have those conversations. And so if that is meaningful to you, please support us by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Robert Pape is up next. Dr. Pape, thank you so much for joining me today. You know, you've studied international domestic terrorists for 20 years, and you've debunked a number of misconceptions in your research. You know, number one, that supporters of the Islamic State were uneducated, isolated, and unemployed. You debunked that myth. They weren't. So let's look at your research on the January 6th insurrection. One year later, what is the most significant finding about those individuals who participated in it. Uh, thank you, Gloria. Thank you for having me on. And I'm especially glad that we have a lot of Catholics in our audience. So as I mentioned to you before we started, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania, but I went to Catholic uh, primary school and high school, and I got the greatest education I think I could have ever had. And I just always have appreciated that. So to answer your question, the absolute number one finding is the word mainstream. We're so used to thinking of extremists as being on the fringe, uh, being part of fringe militia groups or fringe religious sects or religious interpretations on the fringe. We're just used to thinking of extremists as fringe. What's striking about the January 6th insurrectionists, those who broke into the Capitol, and also what's striking about the insurrectionist sentiments in the country today, in the general population, is their mainstream. And this comes through in our research in multiple ways. 
So do you think that because these people are, by and large, mostly mainstream, is one of the reasons some people struggle with even calling it an insurrection? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, they're just patriots, they're just fed up, and, you know, they weren't that dangerous. I mean, we went through a whole summer of Black Lives Matter protests, and people weren't, you know, afraid and saying the Republic was in jeopardy then. Well, you're absolutely right, Gloria, that understanding that the political violence that we see in front of us is mainstream, this really throws us for a loop. It makes us want to normalize what we're seeing because it's part of the mainstream. It also throws law enforcement for a loop because law enforcement is used to dealing with the fringes, not so much mainstream. Because that's, after all, who does crime and so forth is so often on the fringe. Well, the more it's really a mainstream phenomenon, the more it's really quite challenging for us to come to grips with. So when you say mainstream, are we talking about these insurrectionists being like our neighbors, like just everyday people we live with and they're right next door to us? more so than we'll feel comfortable with. So let me just tell you some facts about who broke into the Capitol. And some of the findings about their backgrounds are really striking. Number one finding is their economic profile. Over half of the nearly 700 who were arrested for breaking into the Capitol as of December 1st, over half are business owners or from white collar occupations doctors, lawyers, architects. Only about 13% are members of militia groups like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys. When we look at their college degrees, how many have college degrees? Oh, 25% at least of the insurrectionists have college degrees. And that's about at the national average for American voters, which is about 30%. When we look at military service, about 15% of the insurrectionists have military service. That's a little higher than the 10% in the general population, but actually quite close to the general population. When we look at how many were unemployed, 7% of those insurrectionists who broke into the Capitol on January 6th were unemployed, 7%, nearly the national average at the time. Now, they're not 100% the same as the general population. They're more white. 93% of those who are arrested for breaking into the Capitol are white. They are also more male, uh, about 85%. But it is the case that overwhelmingly what we're seeing is the mainstream. And so the political violence that we've seen here on January 6th it's, it's challenging to come to grips with, Gloria, but it is really quite accurate to say that this is largely mainstream people. One of the things that worries me as I hear you talk about this group of people that you're analyzing is that they have dangerous skills. I mean, if some of them have been in the military, they have some real skills that could do harm to the greater populace. And it's just that's kind of sobering to me. So, Gloria, you're quite right that those who broke into the Capitol, the 15% with prior U.S. military service, that's a particularly lethal layer of the cake of who broke into the Capitol. 
So even though it's a relatively small portion, 15%, it's a particularly dangerous portion. And it's important to know, however, that fully 10% of Americans have prior military service. So this is not the case that there's only one or 2% of America who fits this bill. And it is the case then that when you have uh, essentially volunteers who decide to come together in collective political violence, it is going to be common for there to be uh, 10%, 15%, 8% with military service in the United States. So this means that collective political violence, like the kind we saw when we get large crowds together doing collective political acts, We need to realize that has a dangerous element to it just because of the spread of military service in our population. One of the other things I'm I'm curious about is if, was there any role that religion, particularly Christianity, played in this movement, which led to a siege at the Capitol? So we're not able, with the court documents of those who have been arrested for January 6th, to see much about religion in their backgrounds. That's not an element that comes up in the court documents as just a matter of interviews and so forth. The best way to get at the role of religion is to look at our nationally representative surveys. So once we knew that the January 6th insurrectionists were so mainstream, we conducted nationally representative surveys of the insurrectionist sentiments in the United States population in general. And what we found is that a large number of Americans, 21 million, hold two radical beliefs. One, they believe that the use of force to restore Donald Trump to the presidency is justified. Force is justified to restore Trump. And number two, they believe that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Those are the two key insurrectionist beliefs we saw on January 6th. And that's held not just by the hundreds who broke into the Capitol, but again, by the equivalent of 21 million American adults. And we've done multiple surveys in the summer and in the fall. And that number isn't budging. You might think it would fade away because time would cool passions. You might think that arresting nearly 700 people, and there's jail for many of them, would cause a chilling effect. You might think deplatforming Trump would de-energize the movement. The movement is not fading away. So this is extremely important. Now, when you peel a little bit deeper into this, we can look to the beliefs of the movement. The number one beliefs of the movement are not mainly religious. So one of the things that I'm hearing from me saying this is that despite the arrests, despite Trump being deplatformed, the people that have these beliefs that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president and that Trump should have been installed despite, you know, the outcome of the general election is nothing so far that we would think reasonably that would chill this has had that chilling effect. And I would like to say that as somebody who lives in the D.C. area that lived during all the tumult and saw the aftermath of the effects and stuff like that in the area, I really felt like a lot of people got away. (laughs) I really felt like a lot of people got away and there wasn't a response commensurate with the threat to the republic. 
And it was mind-boggling to me, especially coming from a group of people that normally would say things like law and order, law and order. And this was not lawful, nor was it orderly, the assault that we saw in the Capitol. And there are still people that believe that it wasn't really an assault on the Capitol, that this was more of a Antifa plot, that it was really Antifa behind what happened January 6th. I'm taking the, none of your research shows that it was Antifa. Most of it is showing that it was this segment of people that had these beliefs about Donald Trump and whatnot. How can we, as somebody, if this is mainstream, what are the signs that we might see among our own family or neighbors that might indicate that they are sympathetic and could be radicalized by this movement? So you're quite right. When you go back and replay the experience you had on January 6th, when you say, wow, so many just got away and so forth, let's just talk about that piece for a bit, because this is what you're reflecting, what you're really seeing is what happens when the political violence is part of the mainstream. When the political violence is part of the mainstream, it's much larger and overwhelming than we are expecting. That's true for the Capitol Hill police. That's true for the FBI. That's true for you. That's true for any ordinary person. So if you're expecting violence to come from the fringe, and really only the fringe, like the militia groups or like the extremist groups like the Proud Boys, then you will organize yourselves. This is the Capitol Hill Police or the FBI around militia groups. But if that's only 13% of the problem, you see, and it really turns out there's another 90%, you see, 10 times larger tidal wave coming at you, well, you're going to be overwhelmed because you thought about it as just the fringe. And so this is just in a, in a nutshell, what you've just explained is why it's so important to understand that what we experienced was coming from the mainstream and not just to keep trying to put it in this box of the fringe, because that makes us feel more comfortable to think, oh, they're far away in the fringe. And by the way, the, when we look then at the details of where the 700 who have been arrested for breaking into the Capitol, where did they live? Where did they come from? They came from 44 states, not just around Washington, D.C. They actually, when we look at the county level, they came from counties, more came from counties that Joe Biden won than that Donald Trump won. In fact, the more the county voted for Trump, the less likely was the county to send an insurrectionist. Where are they coming from? Our large metro areas. They're coming from San Francisco. They're coming from LA. They're coming from New York City. They're coming from Philadelphia. They're coming from Dallas. They're coming from Houston. They're coming from Chicago. They're overwhelmingly coming from large metropolitan areas where they are a political minority. They're not coming from the areas that are the most rural parts of the country. Now, for sure, some are, but overwhelmingly, this is a metropolitan movement. This is an urban movement. And so when you say how close and so forth, it is uncomfortable, but it is nonetheless a fact 
that the insurrectionist movement is mainly a movement of urban, suburban, around the large urban area, not mainly coming from the rural parts of America. And that just makes it extremely, again, this is showing why the empirical research that we're doing is so important. Because it's easy to say, well, I have my idea of what a right-wing extremist looked like, and I've had that idea for decades, and I'm not saying it was wrong to have that original idea. It's probably based on life experience and and reality. I'm not doubting that it was true, but this is a different situation, and it's important to see that because otherwise we're going to think that some of the normal solutions in what's called counter-violent extremism, CVE, well, let's give people jobs. Well, wait a minute. If we've got 50% of business owners and doctors, lawyers, and architects, how much is that really going to matter? Their ages, I didn't get a chance to tell you much about their ages. Their average age is around 42. They're centered in their 40s and 50s, not in their mid-20s. A lot of times with counter-violent extremism, we think, well, they're just kind of age out of it. So if you think of like skinhead gang, how do you demobilize skinhead gangs? Well, what that is about mostly is trying to help these young people, teenagers, early 20s, find other positive relationships in their life. That is, they get married, they have kids, and they effectively age out of the gang. Now, this is not realistic when folks are in their 40s and 50s because they're already married. They're already got kids. So this is why it's really important to see, to actually focus on the details of who really was involved, because it really means that this is now a political challenge for our political leaders. We'll be back in a minute. There's an idea in the right that used to be just a fringe idea, which is now moving into the mainstream called the Great Replacement. This idea is that whites are being replaced by non-whites. It's either happening through just birth or it's happening because in the right-wing extremist conspiracy theory that liberal Democrats are making it happen by opening the borders so that they can change the electorate. Well, that idea is now we're seeing it reflected in this mainstream movement that I'm talking about. So the counties that the individuals came from, those 700, the number one characteristic that the counties have in common of the insurrectionists is the decline of white population in their counties. And you might say, well, why would somebody in a county losing white population be so angered to go and become involved in an anti-constitutional, non-constitutional act like trying to stop the election of a duly elected president. Well, keep in mind, there's plenty of politicians and also media figures that are touting this idea of the great replacement. And so if you live in an environment and it starts to seem like it matches the reality of what you're watching on TV or you're listening from your favorite politician, Now you can start to see how that conspiracy theory can start to really produce violence. When we look at our nationally representative surveys, the number one belief that we see among the 21 million is the fear of the great replacement. And we see that that's the biggest belief driving that group. And we can look further. We can see even more deeply that 
People who fear the great replacement also have a fair bit of resentment, racial resentment. So we can start to get to the roots of it, if you see what I mean. So yeah. the nationally representative surveys allow us to diagnose and go a little bit more deeply. But the number one thing that we're seeing here is that there's not just a fringe set of actors that are now kind of moving into the mainstream. We're seeing a fringe set of ideas that used to be in the fringe moving into the mainstream. And this is new. It's not that the idea itself is new. Okay, that's that's not the case. It's that we're used to thinking of this as, oh, that's just those neo-Nazis. You see what I mean? And what does that mean when you say neo-Nazi? Fringe. See, so now we're thinking, oh, that's not really mainstream. That's not really suburbia. You know, (laughs) that's not who's going to go and protest aggressively at school boards. Right. Well, so now people are wondering what's happening in the country. Well, this information we're bringing forward helps to explain why we're seeing essentially, you know, aggressive, violent outbursts occurring. And it's because we're seeing this move to the mainstream, Gloria. And that's why it's important to bring this out to the public. That's why it's important to talk about this. The more we talk about it in the public, the more we'll talk about it with our leaders. And it's not just political leaders, it's community leaders. Yes, it is the law enforcement, but this is We've got to really start to understand we have a new mainstream problem, and this is going to take some time for us to kind of wrap our brains around this. Oof. As I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking about how we in the church have had parallel discussions around racism and the sin of racism and trying to remind people that we are all made in the image and likeness of God, and we're all one human family. Yet, at the same time that we're saying that, we have this anti-gospel message going out that there's a great replacement of these others, you know, these other races that are coming to take your rightful place. And I have to admit that when I watched Fox News, there's one very popular pundit that openly espoused this to my great shock, to my great shock. And I couldn't understand how this person, how there wasn't a greater outcry because they sounded so extreme and fringe to me and also so divorced from reality. And yet with a straight face, these pundits could say these things and still be on the air, not laughed out of the, you know, not laughed out of media. And so I'm trying to figure out in their experience, as you say, of seeing, I guess, uh, the white population decrease in their area, why it's a threat, but attributing it to this racial animus, racial fear, racism basically is kind of unsettling because it's 2021. It's 2021. These are things that you might think would happen in the 1920s or you know 1950s, but 2021, we're still dealing with these things. And it's a bit um, shocking. And so as a person of faith, I'm thinking about how do we counter this? How do I talk to my neighbors? And maybe I won't be the most effective person to talk to people because I'm a Black woman, but maybe other white people speaking to white people, you know what I mean, or having these conversations about where does this come from? How can we deal with this? What can we do? This is actually quite unsettling, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised because I've seen this. What do we do with this information now? So you've started to put your finger on what we can do. Faith leaders, the church, their powerful voices in the community, in the mainstream. 
at a point in time when our politicians are so polarized, our politicians are often monologues shouting at each other, not dialogue. What we need is we need places where we can have real dialogue. Mm. We need the church. Church leaders are a powerful, powerful venue for ameliorating what we have in front of us today. So this is why having church leaders see the details of what I'm describing. So here we're talking about like the tips of the waves, but there are detailed studies and so forth to really come to grips with this information and see the strength and be able to really sort of absorb what we're describing. That's really the next step. The next step is for the leaders, faith leaders, to really come to grips with this information. And then I believe there can be dialogue that can make a tremendous difference in our world. But it's important that the faith leaders not see, oh, yeah, that's just an FBI problem. Or, oh, yeah, that's just a politician's problem. That's a Republican Party problem. You see, that just pushes it away and doesn't come to grips with the fact that what you're seeing is you're seeing political leaders, you're seeing folks in the media reflect what's in the mainstream as much as they may be inspiring it. It's a two-way street. And so who can really help? Well, faith leaders can just be tremendously important, but that means that faith leaders really have to come on board with the mission. And that's a real, that's a big thing. There, I'm sure plates are full. <laughs> There's a lot happening in our world. So to take this on is another central vital mission. But that's how we protect democracy. We protect democracy by looking to our community leaders, not just our national politicians and not just law enforcement. Well, I am thinking our faith leaders actually have to see January 6th as a threat and not something mainstream, just Bob being upset. You know what I mean? They have to see this as a threat to their life. And I also wonder how many of our faith leaders, at least within the Catholic Church, have thought deeply about what happened if they had done this. How would their lives have been changed when the insurrectionists looked like them? You know what I mean? When you're looking at 40, 50-year-old white men, that's they see themselves reflected in that. And so how much of a threat is if they had overthrown everything and had reinstalled Trump, how much do people perceive that as a fundamental threat to their way of life, to their way of being able to worship, to their way of being able to go about, you know, and live their lives (laughs) might be something we'll have to explore. But yeah, I do think we have something to grapple with within the Catholic Church, with our own thinking around patriotism, orthodoxy, and who are the right people to be, quote unquote, in positions of power and influence because we can't have another January 6th. And I'm concerned about what will be happening in 2022, 2024, elections and whatnot, if the sentiment, instead of going away, has remained as strong as ever. I couldn't agree more. I think that you really have captured it very, very well. And I think that what we've just been explaining is why it is so important, not just to think about January 6th as a historical event, going backward, but about what it means for the future. Because what I'm describing as that mainstream movement, and you were describing how politicians and folks in the media have incentives 
to continue it and to stoke it, well, that is important as we get into the 2022 election season. So unfortunately, this could be quite a volatile election season. Of course, 2024, possibly even more, but there's reason for the faith leaders to act now, not to wait until the next event occurs, because we're coming up to a series of very serious, contentious elections where sparks can fly. And when sparks are flying with this much dry kindling, fires can be touched off in a variety of ways. And what happened on January 6th is we waited until the fire went off. And then people said, well, wait a minute, why can't we stop this? Well, it's because you've got the fire. I mean, you need, it's going to take hours to stop that. You're not going to just pick up the phone and 10 seconds later, get 25,000 troops in Washington, D.C. That just doesn't, that's not how those troops work. That's a three-day problem. So that's why we don't want to just wait. We need to act now. And faith leaders really, really, this is just so crucial for the country and our population and our democracy going forward. It just really would help the country enormously. Dr. Pape, thank you so much for helping us understand the drivers behind the January 6th insurrection and who the players are and how mainstream these formerly fringe ideas have become. We have a lot of work to do in our Catholic church community to try to stem the tide of these dangerous ideologies, which frankly are coming in largely unnoticed or largely uncontested. So thank you for putting a real face on what damage that can do to our common good, to our living together in community. I appreciate your insight and your wisdom, and I'll be praying for more success in your work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. By the way, I would really love to hear from you. So please leave us a review if you can. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.